Hi, I'm Sarah Schweig of the Center for Court Innovation, and today I'm speaking with Andrew Papachristos. We are currently at an executive session in Washington, D.C., sponsored by the California Endowment, Community-Oriented Policing Services, and the Center for Court Innovation that brought together public health experts and law enforcement representatives for a conversation about public health approaches to public safety. Andrew Papachristos is a sociologist who focuses his studies on urban neighborhoods, social networks, street gangs, violent crime, and gun violence. As Robert Wood Johnson, health and society scholar, Andrew will expand his use of network analysis to the study of crime epidemics in U.S. cities, paying particular attention to the way violence diffuses among populations of youth. Thank you for speaking with me today. My pleasure. So let's start out by talking about crime epidemics. How does treating violence like a contagious disease affect approaches to crime in law enforcement? And how does it help us understand in general how crime occurs? So I think when the phrase crime epidemics is typically brought up, it's brought up as sort of like a moral panic to sort of motivate people into action. And usually the action is either political or law enforcement. Uh, I think I mentioned during the talk today one of the reactions when we have a crime epidemic is to call out the National Guard, quite literally. I think what uh, both I'm trying to do as well as people in this room are trying to understand what the idea of an epidemic means in public health so we don't mobilize the National Guard when we have an outbreak of influenza or an STD. And I, in fact, taking some of the sciences used in contagious disease studies and apply them to violence, as in who is most susceptible to getting shot, uh, and to use more precise models, especially around social networks, to really understand if crime is a disease, then how does it spread? What is its form? Uh, what is the way that it is transmitted? So to actually take this sort of analogy, which is often political, and actually take it at its sort of real value and understand what these mechanisms of contagion might be. The public probably thinks of social networks as Facebook and stuff like that. Can you talk a bit about what you mean when you say using social network analysis? Sure. Um, and then also what kinds of relationships are you looking at and why are you looking at those mm-hmm. relationships? So social network analysis is a science that's been around for 60 plus years, really started in anthropology and sociology where people were interested in understanding the connections among groups and individuals and how that affects action, political action, social action. Um, health behaviors and the difference between that and sort of regular science is rather than just understand individuals in isolation network analysis really tries to understand how the connections among people um, affect their behavior so how your friend's choice of of political candidates affects your choice or whether it's um, eating habits or or social influence or how you get a job and so the idea of understanding connections and how that affects your behavior Uh, When you talk about the connections that you have, like Facebook, who are your friends, it is actually the science behind it is much like social network analysis, uh, especially the mathematics. Um, But you're trying to understand who are your friends, who are your families, who did you go to school with, who were you in clubs with, um, as well as sort of did you buy the same book as other people. So Amazon uses that type of analysis to understand people who bought this may also like this based on what other people like you have done. Um, In the case of today's discussion about crime, we're trying to understand how certain types of risky relationships, 
So sort of offending relationships or gang relationships affect some of these outcomes like mortality, who gets shot and killed. Uh, and like other types of behavior like intravenous drug use or sex behavior, you want to understand the relationships that matter. So who you share needles with, who you're sleeping with. In much the same way we're trying to understand who you hang out with and how that affects all these sorts of bad outcomes. Right. And you mentioned an offending population. Mm-hmm. And during the talk today, you talked about co-offending populations. And how does how does mass incarceration that our country is dealing with right now tend to affect the offending network? So it's a great question. I haven't looked at it. Okay. Um, sort of in this analysis yet, but what it does do, we know from the evidence as well as sort of what I would hypothesize, is it disrupts these positive networks, family, school, romantic relationships, jobs, and then essentially filters you into a different set of networks when you come out. So the capacity to get a job being an incarcerated felon, the capacity to maintain relationships with your children and that then getting passed down to them, uh, intergenerational transmission of things like poverty, really incarceration is having a long effect on these networks both now and in the future. Um, and hopefully it's something we can get at empirically. Right. On. That's really interesting. And sort of in the vein of where you want this to go in the future, where do you see this, this research moving and how might it affect law enforcement approaches on the ground and also maybe talk a little bit about what would jurisdictions need to best implement these ideas in the most useful ways. Yeah, I mean my guess is that in five to ten years, probably ten sort of network mapping for police will be where sort of hotspot mapping is now. I think that intuitively people understand more now because of things like Facebook and Amazon and the internet how connections matter. I think we've always known it's not, you know, what you know but who you know, the good old boys club, like all those sort of images and sort of analogies now have a basis in scientific analysis. So I think that it's only going to go up. I think there's a critical mass of people beginning to sort of galvanize around it. I think the difference is it's not quite as intuitively simple as geographic map. So you have to actually get people past a certain learning curve. I think that there are all kinds of tools for both enforcement that can be developed technology-wise as well as for other public health and violence prevention initiatives. Again, some of this has been done in smaller scales with HIV and needle exchange programs, sex work. And hopefully the same models can be applied, but it can't be cut and paste. It has to be specific to the epidemic you're examining, right? So crime is, is like but not the same as a needle exchange, right? So understanding the context is, is essential. And that's sort of the, the caution to moving yeah. forward. And you mentioned also moving um, some of these initiatives during your talk toward Milwaukee and San Francisco, some of that mm-hmm. analysis. Do you want to talk a little bit about that just sort of as a last point? Yeah, so I think that what I'm seeing these last couple of years is more and more jurisdictions are, are eager to try something that's much more directed, especially given limited resources, uh, but not just directed, but is directed and can have a huge sort of effect for a small sort of intervention. Uh, I just received an NSF award to expand uh, the work in Chicago and Boston to Cincinnati and potentially San Francisco, but even already cities like Atlanta, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Brooklyn Park, there are a bunch of cities that are already eager to do it, and the capacity is just not there. The big barrier is it's not, it's not a point-and-click 
approach right. just yet, right? Yeah. So with crime mapping, you put in a bunch of addresses, you get your picture. Mm-hmm. There's a there's there's quite a bit more back end to this type of, of technology, and we're not at that stage yet where people with basic computer skills can do it. Right. So it requires an analyst. And so okay. as we train more analysts, it'll become more pervasive, I think. Okay, great. Thank yeah. you so much for speaking with me Okay, today. my pleasure. Thank um, you for having me. I'm Sarah Schweig, and I've been speaking with Andrew Papachristos. Uh, to learn more about the Center for Court Innovation, please visit www.courtinnovation.org. Thank you for listening.